Today on the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, we're talking about B2B buyers, what motivates them, how you can connect to them, and how your organization, by understanding them, can drive greater returns. You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that we're looking for your feedback. If you could go to b2brevexec.com, you'll find a link to a feedback form. It says $5 Starbucks gift card. Uh, We'd like to collect your feedback on the show, get a better idea of of how it's going for you guys, what value you're getting from it, so we can continue to evolve the, the show and the episodes and the guests, make sure that it's providing value for you. In exchange for your time, again, we'll send you a $5 Starbucks gift card. So just fill that out, put your email in there. We're not going to use it to email you anything. We just want the feedback uh, and your perspective. So I'll thank you in advance for taking the time to do that. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with Brett Racklin. He is the CRO, Chief Revenue Officer at KPI Target. And the topic today is how B2B buyers buy. There's a lot of conversation going on out there in the marketplace about why companies are struggling to connect to their buyers. You know, what's the key to selling value? What is it that makes it difficult? for sales reps and organizations to truly understand what B2B buyers want, and more importantly, what can they do to get a better understanding to drive their sales and marketing initiatives. Uh, Brett was kind enough to come on the show. We want to thank him for his time today. It's a great conversation. Hope you guys enjoy it. Brett, thank you for taking the time and coming on the show today. Looking forward to introducing you to our listeners, and I think the best place to start is probably just a little bit about your background and and what's going on at KPI Target, what you guys do, and then from there, we'll roll into and talk about uh, B2B buying. Sure, Chad. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here and look forward to a a very entertaining conversation. Uh, This is certainly (laughs) one of my my favorite topics, talking about kind of how buyers buy. I, I I love discussing this. But uh, a little background about me, uh, you know, I've spent the majority of my career, really the past little over two decades, focused primarily on uh, working with B2B and tech companies and helping them grow. Uh, Started off my career more on the public relations side and did a lot of media relations and analyst relations, working with the Gartners and the Foresters of the world in the late 90s when the tech boom really, um, you know, kicked off in earnest. Uh, unfortunately, obviously, there were some challenges with the dot-com implosion you know, around 2000, 2001. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess, fortunately for me, I had then moved on to a software company where I did product marketing and then ultimately led that led me to run marketing for a video surveillance and access control t- company for eight years. Uh, and my, my role really focused more on lead generation, much more than the market awareness that I had been doing prior to that. And so for the past few years, I've been consulting and uh, recently joined with uh, KPI Target, which is run by Mike Rowan, uh, to really help our clients do the deliver marketing qualified leads and help them convert that to opportunities to close business. Uh, Mike had been a partner of mine where we were doing a lot of digital marketing activities like SEO and pay-per-click, as well as email marketing and, and social selling. And I was kind of heading up the strategy and for those, those clients. And our combined efforts focused around how buyers buy, developing the messaging and positioning that's going to resonate, and then helping them go to market with the right 
you know, marketing and sales approach that's going to engage their prospects and help close more business, we found was, you know, more powerful together than apart. Well, and that, that concept of B2B buyers and understanding your buyers, it's one that well, I mean, any, any of us that do this for a living, we see companies struggle with it consistently. Sometimes they're large enough that they're getting in their own way, because I, I think, because they can't seem to kind of step outside of themselves. But it's this constant, how do I better understand my, you know, my buyers? So I'm, I'm really curious to hear kind of your perspective on that and what approaches you found to be the most effective. Well, you know, it's it's what's interesting is is that back in back in the '90s when we used to do a lot of messaging sessions, we would get together with our clients and we would do some research around their you know their target market and we would listen to them. But we really at that time, and maybe this was due to budgets, we didn't spend a lot of time actually talking directly to the the customers or the or the bot target buyers or the or the influencers in the in the deals. And it was just generally accepted that that's the way things were done. And it, it sometime in the in the mid 2000s, uh, certainly the trend started to focus around really talking with your buyers and having these kind of qualitative conversations. You could always do. I think we always recommend doing some quantitative converse, you know, research too, but the qualitative ones are the ones where you get all the anecdotes that really dig into how they buy. And you know, first off, in terms of how you go about it. it Everybody's really connected with their target buyers. Companies, you know, especially salespeople, but certainly the organizations themselves, they already have customers. There's a lot of people that they can go ask these questions to, but they're often afraid to have the conversations. Um, they think that sometimes they won't engage. It's a waste of time. But what we found that really works is, is that, first of all, if you just ask them, um, usually people are going to say yes. I mean, that's you know the first thing. But the second thing is, is that especially if you have a third party do it, um, it there it takes away. This is not a sales call. This is a this is a call or an interview where you are spending some time with someone to really understand their perspective. And when you make it about someone else, about themselves. People really like to talk about themselves, um, and and it, we really find that we attract um, individuals to be able to do that. And we're talking typically a thirty minute call. And even though I'm from Philadelphia uh, and have you know grown up, you know, kind of being a little bit cynical coming from that area, <laughs> uh, you know, people are generally nice. I it's a it's I we rarely get turned down for these interviews because it's positioned that ultimately if they help us by giving us this information and telling us how they buy. Our promise is, is we're not going to try and sell you on this call, and our communications should really be better to you and the other buyers out there over time because we should learn from what you're saying, and they they tend to appreciate that. And so when you when you engage with those types of interviews, is it typically your clients asking you to go out and do that, and they're setting you up with you know these accounts that we won or these accounts that we lost or these customers that we've had for a long time, or are you suggesting? Here's kind of the spread of people, you know, we really should go talk to so that we get a nice cross section uh, to aggregate into some type of, you know, buyer persona or something. Yeah. Well, more often it's it's our suggestion. I mean, it's amazing that clients really are not coming to us with this. Usually they're coming to us with a different problem. Uh, we are either, you know, we're, we're experiencing some challenges in, with our marketing and sales efforts. We're not getting people to return our calls or emails. There's some sort of barrier that's going on. Or, you know, on the positive side, we may be entering a new market. Uh, we may be launching a new product in a existing market or a new market. So there's there are, but it's rare that we get it on the positive side. Usually there's a problem, and they want to figure out they want to fix their messaging, and. <laughs> 
And so if you're going to fix their messaging, it's usually us who's recommending, well, you know, tell us a little bit about your buyers. What are your buyers? Buyer personas and, and buyer personas are often done at the surface level. You know, the typical buyer for uh, a you know is a CFO who is often male, thirty-five to fifty-five, with this type of education, probably has an MBA. That's just baseline. Right. We get in, we get into the kind of the and we can talk about this more on the call, but we get into really how do they make the decisions to buy these types of products or services? What triggers them to look for them in the first place? What information resources do they trust? So we're coming to them and recommending that you know, we want to you know, talk to really as many buyers as possible. Usually it starts off with a minimum of five because they, they don't have a lot of time and they worry about it. And so we get them agree to do, let's do five interviews. And what we've done is, is that we prepare a communication for them to use with their existing customers and prospects. And we prefer, you know, to talk to prospects or companies that they've lost as well. That has really no, makes no difference to us. A buyer is a buyer. It doesn't matter if they won or lost the deal. Doing win-loss analysis is a different different set of questions. Also highly valuable, but serves a different purpose. That's an interesting perspective, right? Buyer is a buyer whether you get them or not, because a lot of customers, you know, and even when I was running, you know, sales and marketing groups, and we had an outside firm doing the win-loss, I as the as the guy who was responsible for the revenue was much more interested to hear why we had lost. I wanted to understand the buyer and, and what their motivators were. Um, and the buy, it's always interesting when you go to a buyer, like a, a client that you've lost, and you say, hey, uh, would you be willing to jump on the phone with, with Brett for me for 30 minutes and just be honest? There's this, there's this pregnant pause. And they're like, are you trying to trap me? But once they get on the phone with you know, guys like you, then they, they definitely open up some of the most valuable information I've ever seen. Uh, I just don't understand why more companies don't embrace that as kind of a standard practice. I think it's. Uh, I think there's some a bit of fear, uh, and but it's also I think somewhat of an accountability issue too. Um, marketing, for example, is being held accountable more and more, and rightfully so, for contribution um, to revenue. And you know, marketing. I, in fact, one of my favorite salespeople I worked with used to constantly joke with me about how marketing was only about you know making pretty pictures, and this is. <laughs> Yeah, well after, <laughs> well after he should have been doing that, but it, it, but it was, but it's true. I mean, that's the way marketing was perceived for a long time, and marketing was not held accountable. And so there are still a lot of organizations out there where marketing and even sometimes sales, depending on, and I'm sure you see this with your customers, that sales is not being held accountable either. And so when you think about having the conversations with your target buyers, as well as your target influencers, especially these complex deals where you have multiple individuals in inside your prospect that are influencing and deciding how you know they're going to choose you or someone else, uh, is either that or on the win-loss analysis side, do they really want to know why they lost? Because it could, it might be having to look in the mirror at some point, and that's that's a tough thing to have happen. Yeah, we'd always when we get the win loss analysis, I'd always do a debrief with the rep, or I'd have somebody else if it was my account, have somebody sit down with me, and those can be painful. They they can be really painful, but if you just have the, you know, if you have the wherewithal to just take a moment, take a deep breath, and realize this is an opportunity to get better, I, I've seen people make serious strides, and companies make serious strides. Uh, in taking that feedback, internalizing it, and changing their behaviors into something that has a tendency to generate more results. Now, at the corporate level, we're talking about if you were doing a, 
you know, a large scale kind of campaign, that's one thing. But if a company's not doing that, how do you recommend that individual sales reps that want to understand their buyers, how would you recommend they go about it if it's not something the organization's already doing? So that's a, that's a great question, Chad. And the, there's the best opportunity in, in, from my standpoint on that for a salesperson to be able to do it is oftentimes after they win a deal. Uh, and they could obviously do it after they lose a deal as well. But I think it's more likely when a salesperson wins, there's obviously there's a, a sense of enjoyment, I think, on both sides. They've gotten this deal done. The customer is ready to move forward. There might be a, 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 you know, a transfer from the salesperson to a, a customer success person, some sort of onboarding that may go on. So before that transfer happens, why not have the salesperson take some time and say, hey, can we take 30 minutes and – you know, let me just go through some questions with you because I want to, you know, I want to validate some of the things that maybe I learned through this process. But I also want to get some feedback from you about, you know, what did I do right and what 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 could I have done better in the deal? So it's, it would probably be structured a little bit differently from the questions we typically ask up front. But in terms of thinking about, you know, one of the things that's really important to me is market, the terms marketing and sales. Marketing and sales are vendor terms. They are not buyer or customer terms. Buyers you know, do not care about whether you're talking to a marketing or salesperson. They're looking to somebody to help them. And usually that is some sort of communications. I prefer the term communications. And if I think vendors start to think about how do we communicate with our target customers, our target buyers? How do we deliver value in those interactions? The conversation changes greatly. And I think if a sales rep can get that kind of feedback from a bot, from their, their customer after, after a deal's been done, they're going to learn a lot more on how to go forward. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, I don't understand um, why. I mean, everybody's talking about value these days, right? But so few people seem to understand that it's not me as a rep showing up saying, hey, these features and benefits and this part of my product is what's going to provide value. The concept of value isn't, isn't yours. It's the buyer's. And if you can't figure out how to get there, you're not going to be able to connect to it. And one of the ways I've seen some reps do it, I see very, I'll be honest, I've seen very few do it, but I have seen some reps ask the customers where they've won to kind of give them that feedback. Then you have to apply the happiness filter to it, right? They are, like you said, they all just won. They came up with a great deal. Um, so you got to temper it a little bit, but those that have a tendency to, to seek that feedback are the most effective. And Again, it's one of those things that I wish I had a silver bullet. I probably could retire if we came up with it. And actually, if you and I come up with it on the show, then we'll both retire. But how do you right, help these right. reps figure out? Like, it's not to me. It's not a tough concept. And I'm wondering, and we're way off topic here, but I'm wondering. We've talked about fear a couple of times. I'm wondering the fear that I see in some sales reps around rejection or around really wanting to hear the truth. I'm just curious, do you think that is inherent in the sales and marketing profession? Like the fear that I don't get the message right, or I don't, I get rejected or are you, are sales and marketing Absolutely. people more, you know, exposing themselves more? I think I think that fear really does exist. I think right if you look at LinkedIn with any regularity or Twitter, um, but this is, comes out on LinkedIn. You've seen some of the shaming that goes on. Yeah, by the way, true. where people, which I'm actually working with a with a client right now, where I'm kind of actually helping them do some business development, it's, and and so I'm actually sending some emails to uh, some contacts at kind of large health insurance companies, and I'm trying to sort of navigate through 
and one of the questions I'm asking is, is kind of, can you, can you introduce me to the right person? I'm pretty sure that the person I'm talking to is not the right person to be having the, the, the real conversation we're looking to have, but we've connected with them. And I think that's a fair question to ask. But as I've been doing this, I've seen the fact that, you know, some people will shame that question out there saying that, well, you should know, you know, you should know who the right person is already. Well, that's not always easy, easy to do. And I'm a human being and they're a human being. And if we've connected in some way, why is it off limits to ask a question like that? And you, you have to be willing to put yourself out there. Uh, and I think that there often is a lot of fear. It's just like in a lot of ways, it's about, you know, somewhat stage fright. If you're about to go, you know, do a performance and you're an actor, you've, you know, you're nervous before that performance as, as well as you've been you know, doing it all your career. It's the same thing. If you're selling a new product or you're reaching out to a new prospect, you feel you, you risk that initial rejection and you have to test things out and you're, you're not going to bat a thousand. So it's, uh, I think there's a lot of fear there. And I think there's more risk in terms of our social media efforts that you could be exposed for potentially making a quote unquote mistake when in, in reality, that's fairly innocent. Yeah, I remember when they used to say there's no such thing as a dumb question. I don't know if that's necessarily true anymore. <laughs> well, and, that, and and you are expected, I, I agree, I mean, you are expected to know a lot more about your target customer than you were. I mean, the discovery, you can't ask the same discovery questions that you asked even two years ago. Right. Uh, I do, I certainly, things evolve, but but there are times where you do need to be able to ask questions, you need to be able to feel comfortable with that. This idea, you know, Clearly, buyers have a lot more control in these complex B2B deals. But to say that buyers and buyers may do a lot more research on their own, but that doesn't mean that they are going through the buying cycle without interacting with a salesperson. They may be doing some research, but that doesn't mean they're going through the entire process without interacting with sales. And that's why sales and marketing folks really need to think about how they're aligned from a communications perspective, because it doesn't matter who it's coming from, but as long as they're delivering the right content to that buyer at the right time in the buying cycle, that's all that matters. And you have to have a certain amount of humility and sharing of the turf among marketing and salespeople. And that adjusts over time. So when you start with one thing, you have to recognize that it could change over time, which is why interviewing your buyers on a regular basis really should be a best practice. Now, we haven't gotten there to convince everybody to do, usually we do it up front and then they don't do it as a regular practice. They probably should be due. Imagine. Your board sets a target of 20% revenue growth in 18 months. So something will have to change with your sales team. How do you beat your target? Value Prime Solutions can help ensure your managers and reps are leveraging a sales framework that focuses on value, not price. Don't assume you have it all figured out. Don't wait until it's too late. Visit valueprimesolutions.com and let them help. So we've talked about buying at the, at the company level and, and looked at the sales side, like how do sales guys do it. Now let's talk about marketing for a second, the content that they produce. Um, as we were prepping for the show, you mentioned that you know, you're a big fan of content that differentiates and resonates. You want, I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit for our audience. Sure. So first of all, B2B content, uh, especially at the uh, – you know, especially at the beginning of the buying cycle, especially when you're trying to attract prospects to you, is is still too boring. 
uh, <laughs> is the bottom line. It's, 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 I mean, companies are amazingly conservative. You know, when they, when companies often will build a website, you know, I mean, obviously all websites are responsive. Of course they're going to be responsive. They have to be because everybody, we live in a mobile world, but they also all look the exact same too. And so, you know, everybody, when you're building a website, our clients are always saying, here are the sites I like, here are the sites I don't like. And that's fine to do, but you do, it is important probably to think through how do I want to be portrayed out in the world? How can I be bolder with my message, with my communications, and to get somebody to turn their heads? Because I think most vendors don't realize just how noisy it is. Vendors get very much tunnel vision around themselves and their immediate competition. What they fail to realize uh, is that you are not competing just with your direct competition. You're competing with all of the priorities that your buyer, target buyer has. So if you're ahead of all your competition, but you're the fourth priority, what are you going to do to raise urgency to become the first or second priority to get them to turn their heads toward you? That's where you need to be a little bit more creative with your content. So, And it does need to be a little bit more entertaining. And, and you're seeing a trend where more B2B content is becoming more B2C-like because it's not company to company, it's person to person. And people respond to things that are interesting to them. So obviously you know a ton about your buyers. Within LinkedIn, you can get obviously things about where people went to school, what their interests are, what their charities are. You can use that information to create you know, content that's interpersonal directly to them. You can also create some more general content from a marketing perspective that relates to the issues that are, are available. Raising the issue of um, in certain with certain buyers, that's going to be compelling to them is critical to be able to get their attention. And it, it just takes it takes some research and remembering that people people are still people, even your even your buyers, right? I had a conversation the other day with Brian Kramer about his H to H book, and we were talking, and it's like B two C and all of the changes that have been made in B two C and the expectations of experience, and you know when the iPhone came out and kind of changed the dynamic, all of that's made its way into B two B, not because B two B has been looking for it, but because B two B is still people. So they're bringing that desire for that customer experience, that frictionless experience into the B2B buying uh, arena. And what I see a lot of is, you know, I spent the last 10 years doing digital digital interfaces, right? We did a lot of customer interviews, CX, uh, all of that kind of stuff. I see sales reps just, their eyes get really big. They're not, they're, wait, wait, you want me to put personality in it? Like, like how much is how much is too much personality? Like how much of myself do I really let shine through? And I think it's a line that a lot of these sales and marketers and companies are struggling with. So just out of curiosity, if you could give somebody guidance on, you know, making it more personal and how far, how far would you suggest they go? Or can you give us an example? Well, I, I do think you need to read the room and each, each company is different in terms of you have to know your market. So for example, you wouldn't show up to a client meeting or a prospect meeting um, wearing a certain type of clothing if it wasn't appropriate for that particular client. Now, some clients, it would be appropriate to wear a suit, okay? Other clients, that is in itself wearing a suit could be offensive to them because they have a different brand and that's not what they would want to see from their sales rep coming in to meet with them. So you do have to read the room. I fall on the side that you you need to insert your personality as much as possible. Uh, in fact, 
there's uh, a woman named Sally Hogshead who has a company around called How to Fascinate, uh, which is kind of the flip of the Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs is how you see the world. How to Fascinate is how people see you. And she has come up with this very um, a, a unique approach of, of how she identifies what fascinates people about you. And so her point is, is that we all have certain amount of strengths. We should be using those strengths. And part of that strength is our personality. So from a sales perspective, our personality should clearly be involved. I think from a marketing perspective, you would probably be using more of that personality, again, to attract people. I think you can be a little bit more business-like once you're in the deal engaging with them. I think that where the personality comes in later in the deal when you're further through the buying cycle is when you have to re-engage and get them to come back. I mean, as you know, marketing qualified leads uh, are often handed to salespeople and sometimes they'll, they'll call them and they'll, they won't get a returned call and they'll say, Oh, that's it. That wasn't really a marketing qualified lead. The lead will kind of get lost. They won't go back into nurture <laughs> yeah. and that, and they'll wipe their hands of it. Well, that marketing qualified lead is based on criteria that you've kind of defined as this is the criteria that defines that, that lead stage. And just because you define it that way doesn't mean that the salesperson isn't going to have to work to get them to engage. And that's where personality comes in. You have to be able to differentiate and you have to find a way to relate to them. And people, again, I think, I think the risk is much smaller than people think it is in terms of showing that personality. Now, that doesn't mean you're never going to offend somebody. You're never going to upset someone. But <laughs> I'd, rather, I'd rather do that than have crickets and not have anybody responding to me. Well, yeah. Uh, the flip you know, side of that is if you, if you don't put your personality in, let's say it's a B2B sale. It's, it's a long sales cycle. And then you have an engagement that's longer. And you're going to be involved with this client. At some point, your personality is going to come out. And if you don't, if you don't include it up front, do you really want to, I mean, if you offend them, do you really want to be spending the next two years working with that client? That right. experience for you is going to be horrible and for them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you have to weigh, you have to really weigh your options on that and really, again, have to figure out how much you can use, but it, you, but you can definitely take some chances there. I think to, if depending on, on how it's set up, like I'm a very transparent person. So I, especially when I'm selling, even to my clients, I, they know that I'm being straight with them from the beginning. So when you get into the engagement and there could be problems, they know they can come back to me and they know they're going to get a straight answer of how we're going to fix it. And, and I think that's really important. Now, sometimes that transparency can come back to, you know, to bite me, uh, because sometimes that's not appreciated at certain times of <laughs> the communications. And have I probably lost opportunities or had negative interactions, even with my own team members because of that transparency? Probably. But, you know, I, I'd rather be, I'd rather over communicate than have someone think that I am keeping something from them. Yeah, without a doubt. I, I'm, I'm very much the same way. I would rather know where I'm at with somebody. I think it makes it better for them too, right? I mean, it's just everybody knows where you're at. There's none of this wasted energy on, well, what did he really mean? Or, or what happens if I go to him? It just creates too much wasted energy in my opinion. It's better if everybody is just not – it's an overused word. And I'm a little – it's probably almost a little bit too touchy-feely for me, quite frankly. But that authenticity – um, everybody's talking about that authenticity. If you can't be authentic in the sales cycle, you know, people buy from people, you know, and the marketing people have to understand that too. And if you just can't do that and understand that sometimes you're going to be looked at and said, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do business with you. The first time that happens, oh man, that's painful. You're like, oh wait, you don't like me. It's like, no, just be realistic. You don't, not everybody's a match, right? 
That's right. But it, that's that. But it, if you're a, a public speaker, if you're trying to create a speaking business, uh, you are not going to be liked by everybody. If you try to be liked by everybody, you will not have a successful a successful speaking career <laughs> right. because you are trying to be all things to all people, and that means you stand for nothing. Um, you have to stand for something, even if it's a not a divisive topic, but if it's it, it could be about something in terms of leaders, it could be about leadership. And if you stand for a, t- a specific type of progressive leadership in terms of, of your approach, and that goes against what's been done traditionally, uh, you, you are probably going to offend traditional people from that perspective, but that doesn't mean you're not going to be successful. Exactly. Excellent. Well, perfect, Brett. This has been an absolute joy to have you on the show. If a listener's interested in talking more about these topics we touched on today, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Well, I have a couple of ways. Obviously, anyone can always call me. Um, yeah, I'm one of the few people Wait, because maybe what? because you I'm answer the, well, you answer the I, phone. I, I do, I do. <laughs> I think it's because I used to do PR, and I used to always appreciate when people answered my call. So I, I 99% of the time will will answer the phone if I can. And uh, my number is you know six seven eight seven 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 three one eight seven. And then also people can certainly get a hold of me via email, uh, which is Brett, which is B R E T at KPI target, all one word.com. Excellent. Again, I can't thank you enough for having you on the show. It's been great. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much, Chad. It's been, it's been a pleasure and I enjoyed it immensely. Excellent. All right, everyone that does it for this episode, please check out b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, families, coworkers. And if you like what you've heard, please do us a favor, write a review on iTunes. We do look at those reviews to make sure we're bringing on people that you guys want to hear from. Until next time, we at Value Prime Solutions wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.